Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your kindness, for your love and your wisdom that you give to us. You are to be exalted above all things, God, because of your greatness. And I pray, Father, that we would love you well this morning by our attentiveness to your word. Uh, Teach us, Father, we pray from your word. Help us to trust in it, to believe in it, uh, to walk in its ways. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So what I want to do, if you remember, last week we were working through uh, a definition. And that's really foundational when you think about a definition. What we're aiming at, we're trying to claim exactly what we're talking about. And, And I'll just read for you the first point that we got through, and we only got through one out of the three. And essentially what I'm going to try and do is work you through these points of definition, the, the three, uh, br- the, the breakdown of three that we, that we had, and then just give some biblical support for it as we work through it. Because I think it's important as we talk about biblical soul care that you understand the shape, the scope, the definition of what we're describing here. So I'm going to read the first part and then I'll jump into the second Um, and start describing to you the second part of the definition of biblical soul care. And this is the definition. Biblical counseling is a personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church, dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's Word through the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that you'll notice as we talked last week is it's under the oversight of the church, which is really critical. That's the the institution that has been given authority by God for this work, to care for the souls of people. And the reason we're going to talk about in just a second is uh, the way or why people are broken or how people became broken. God instituted the church through His Word to be the ones that minister His Word to repair that which is broken. Uh, And and we're going to talk about that here in just a second. The, The other thing that I want to highlight before we go into our point number two is that anything we do to pursue human change becomes a re- outside of the scripture becomes a replacement of the work of the spirit. It becomes a replacement of our doctrine of sanctification, which we're going to talk about a lot in this uh, course on soul care. And so I want us to pay attention to that because, as I mentioned last week, there are always opportunity costs. Okay, when, when we believe or act in a certain way, there are always opportunity costs. And so anytime we pursue a uh, type of change outside of what the Scripture calls us to, it becomes in some ways a competing idea uh, against the work of the Spirit or against uh, a biblical doctrine of sanctification. So let's go into number two. What is the goal of biblical counseling? That's always important uh, as we think about a definition. What are we aiming at? That's really important. Uh, We want to know what we're aiming at. And we have to be cautious and very careful in how we define or what it is that we're aiming toward. Because here's here's the issue, is the way in which you define a problem, I want you to think about this categorically. I'm asking you to think here. The way that you define a problem, okay, whatever human problem we think we have, however you define that problem, begins to narrow the shape and scope for that that you're aiming at or how you think that problem is repaired. Does that make sense? So whatever whatever issue it is that we have from a human perspective, however we define that, however we categorize that, the way in which we interpret or describe that this part of me is broken 
begins to narrow my view on what I'm looking at that I think will help me uh, to fix that, that problem. So when we think about goal, it's important to identify from a distinctly Christian perspective what the goal is uh, for humankind. Okay, so, so what is the goal? Let's talk about that in this part of the definition. Biblical counseling seeks to reorient disordered thoughts, desires, affections, behaviors, and worship toward a God-designed anthropology. Now, that's a big word. I'm going to try to break that down. In an effort to restore people to a right fellowship with God and others. Now, I want us to pause just for a second and think about the idea of biblical counseling and what it is that we're aiming at. It's a desire to reorient ourselves, to reorient ourselves around something in particular. If you understand who we are as humanity, what's distinct for us in Christianity is we are dependent beings. Every other approach that we have to understanding human life here today is really humanistic. What I mean by that, it's a big word that just simply means, it, it means that man is the highest good, that, that all the wisdom that we have is sort of born from above, and we're going to figure out how to help man, that's humanism, or how to exalt man in some way. It's as if man is some sort of independent being, but that's not so according to the Christian gospel. According to the Christian gospel, according to God's word, we are dependent beings, Right, And we're dependent, I hope to preach about this even next week, we're dependent beings upon God, who God is, that he's the only being that's eternal, that is unchanging, and that we operate in accordance with him. We operate as we, as we live life in relationship to him. Everything we think, say, and do, as I said last week, makes a statement about God. And so, what we know from Christian scripture is that, based on Genesis chapter 3 and then the, the rest of the scriptures, is that man is, is fallen. Romans chapter 12, or by, uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that by one, uh, one man's sin, sin entered into the world and death by sin. We are disordered people. The scriptures talk about this idea in a thousand ways. It describes the manifestations of our human existence in, in emotional terms or behavioral terms that are, that are disori- disordered or disoriented away from God. Now, in order to understand a disorientation, you have to understand proper orientation, okay? What, that, what it means to, to live healthy and proper in life. You have to understand how it is that we are broken. And so the, the, the description of the scriptures is that we are broken because of sin. Well, you hear a lot of times people want to criticize biblical counseling, for example, and say, well, all you guys do is talk about sin. And what they mean by that is they say, all you talk about is somebody's personal sin, and you just want to fix somebody's personal sin. Well, I think that's a misrepresentation, and it... it Bears, we have to bear in mind the, the whole counsel of Scripture when we talk about how and why people are broken. We're broken basically on, on the idea of sin, you know, as a major theme, certainly. Uh, but I break that down into sort of two themes, okay? The first is corporate sin, and the second is certainly personal sin, okay? Corporate sin, what I mean by that is the, the sin of Adam, okay? Based on Romans chapter 5, when sin entered the world, we see a curse of sin. And with that curse of sin, guess what happens? There's a a curse that happens with the world to the point to where the Bible describes the world as being disoriented in relation to him. That all of creation, the Bible says, is groaning. Groaning for what? That, that we're out of, out of repair, in disrepair. 
And so there's this constant call, even, even from us as humanity, we know that the way we're living life is, as one writer puts it, not the way it's supposed to be. We have this constant sort of call, in, even in our own heart, that, man, life is not supposed to be quite like this, right? Why is that? Because of, because of sin. And even when we're impacted by sin on, on various levels, we see the curse of sin abounding around us. And then we struggle with this idea of personal sin. And this is certainly primary. This is a part of the primary themes of Scripture, is a, a constant call that God would restore us through Christ specifically, that He would restore all that was broken in us. Now, this is a message that's filled with hope in an amazing way. Now, one of the most important things, I think, about the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus is, oh, of course, we don't like to hear the bad news about sin. We, we don't really appreciate that. But when we can define human problems in terms of the way the Scripture defines human problems in terms of sin, what that means is that there's hope for humanity. And when you start looking at the ways the world describes human problems, what you see is that we're hopeless and all we can do is cope with the situations that we find ourselves in. And what that leads is what it leads to is more and more disorder and more and more disrepair. It doesn't lead truly to a curative process in our humanity. We're just sort of dealing with who we are and we just have to learn to cope with that. Do you see the distinction? And so this is important that we understand how it is that we are disoriented. Okay. Now, in what ways are we disoriented? Well, the Bible describes tons of ways that we are disoriented, and we've been called to reorient ourselves. Uh, by Christ, by his word, to, to the God of the Bible. This is the idea. If you remember, um, let, me, let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, Do not draw a line of demarcation and say, So far as secular and so far as religious. Let your whole life be religious. And he quotes Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. This should be the aim of all things in our lives. When we talk about reorientation, we're talking about everything in life oriented appropriately toward God. And see, so when we find ourselves disoriented, sometimes we like to sort of categorize those problems. Well, these are, these are spiritual problems, and there's this sort of like small category over here which the, the Bible is authoritative and helpful for over in, in this sort of corridor of our life. But then, you know, we have like physical problems and psychological problems, and those are like a totally different category, and there's something else authoritative over those things. And what Spurgeon is helping us to understand, which I think Colossians 3 talks about, 1 Corinthians 10.31 certainly speaks of, you see this idea throughout the, the rest of the passages of Scripture, particularly the ones that talk about every idle word that we speak, all the deeds that we do will be judged by God. It's, there's nothing that you do that's non-spiritual. Even the physical things that you do, the, the physical issues of your body, how do we describe physical problems that we have? Well, those are decaying. Your body's decaying. Why, why is your body decaying? Because of sin, right? Now, does that mean a doctor's not helpful? No, absolutely not. One of the first things that I do when I counsel somebody, particularly in, in areas where there could be some sort of physical issue going on, is I do a process of elimination and I want to know, are there physical issues going on? So I want to send them to a doctor, but it doesn't mean my work is done. Why? Because if they're in, encountering some sort of physical issue, I know that it's going to impact them in some way spiritually. Even if there's a testimony of some sort of di disease in their body, okay, let, let's say, for example, 
Heaven forbid that you are diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you're given a short time to live and, and it is a terminal disease. Do you think that that's a spiritual issue for you? You see, we have this tendency to compartmentalize ourselves as physical beings or immaterial beings as if the two should never meet. But in reality, what we see is that even when we're diagnosed with something physically, that's a testimony that the scriptures are true, right? Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that our bodies are decaying. It is, we are seeing the effects of sin happen on us in particular. But think about the inner wrestling that's happening in those moments when you're diagnosed in that way and you have to now come to grips with what you sort of knew was true and real out there and it was, it was right, this idea of death that seemed so far away, now it's very imminent. And now that death is imminent, you're wrestling with things and thinking about things that you never dreamed even possible as you come to grips with the reality that, that one day life's not going to be like it is right now that you will stand before God one day. The testimony of Scripture is true. It's appointed that a man who wants to die and then the judgment. That is a spiritual adventure now for you. So there's nothing you, you do that's non, a non-spiritual act in life, even to the point of eating and drinking. The Bible says whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, the most mundane things that you accomplish in life are actually spiritual adventures. Yes, the conversations that you have in your kitchen, the ways that you speak to all the members of your family, maybe even the way that you drove here this morning. All these things that you do are, are spiritual in nature. You're always doing them in relation or in orientation to God because the Bible makes very clear for all the things that we do, all the things that we think, we will give an account because it's all a stewardship to him. And so now, now when we get this paradigm correctly, we understand what proper biblical orientation ought to be like in order to live what the psalmist describes in Psalm 1 as a blessed or a happy life, right? That we live life in orientation to God where Scripture now becomes as sweet as honey to us. Why? Because it's necessary for life. It's necessary to know how to orient ourselves in a way that's blessed and honored before the Lord as we walk faithful as stewards in everything that we do. See, this radically changes the outlook of everything. It radically changes even the goal that I'm aiming at in life, what I'm trying to accomplish. So how do we think about this reorientation? Well, first of all, when you think about reorientation, the fact that you need to be reoriented says something about you, doesn't it? And the fact that all of us need to be reoriented says something about us, that you're not by yourself in the human problems that you have. The evil one does such a tremendous job, I think, at trying to isolate you with your problems, thinking that you're the only one who struggles with that. But the fact that we need reorientation in our thoughts and desires and our behaviors is a testimony that's true about all of us in humanity, that, that we all struggle in many ways. We're all divorced because of sin in our understanding of God, in our reflection of the character of God, in our loves and our wants and affections toward him, that those things need to be reoriented. Now, when you feel the weight of that, you begin to see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. See, and you need to feel the weight of that disorder, that disrepair in you, the, the testimony of Scripture that, that sin is decaying you. 
And it's okay for you to feel the weight of that. Why? Because when you feel the weight of that and you look unto Christ, you see the beauty and the grandeur and the treasure that is Christ. If you don't see the depths of who you are before Christ, then Christ is just one of several options, and he seems like a a good therapeutic option for some things that you deal with in life. But see, when you, when you understand the depths of who you are and the struggles that you have and how deeply this infection of sin goes, your desire now to look to Christ and the way that you see him as, as beautiful and a treasure that is the only way in which your whole being is repaired by God's good kindness to you, now we begin to see life differently. So we need to be reoriented. Listen to uh, Paul as he describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he's concluding several really important things here. I'll just read verses 14 and 15. But, but what I want you to see is uh, what Christ came to do. Okay? He's describing in verse 14 that the love of Christ controls us or the love of Christ compels us. Now I want you to pause for a second and think about this. You need to ask yourself that question. Does the love of Christ actually control me? Is it what motivates me? This is a a testimony of desire. That the love of Christ, in other translations, says compels me. It motivates me in a certain way. Now, this is important because what comes next can't be possible without the love of Christ compelling or controlling us. Do you ever think about why it is or how it is that you love someone else? It's not because you took some sort of course on how to love someone else well. The, the way that you love someone else well, the Bible says, is you, you understand the depth of the love of God for you. And when you begin to understand the depth of the love of God for you, now the love of Christ compels you. It controls you, motivates you in the ways that you live, to act, think, and speak. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, and why did he die for all? Listen to this, and he, he boils this issue down really into two basic categories. Listen to how he says this. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, this is an important distinction here. Uh, what, what is the understanding of Paul prior to knowing Christ, that who do you live for? He lived for you. And you live for you in, in a compilation of constant sinning one upon another over and over. Even the righteous things that you do, the Bible says, are filthy rags in the sight of God because they are compelled by you and for you. Is that the way that you were made? Is that the design that God gave to us? And the Bible says absolutely not. What Paul is describing here is this reorientation of heart desire. You see, what sin does is it infects us in our inmost being. It affects the way that you think. It affects what you desire. It affects the things that you love, the things that you want, and how you want them, and why you want them. You want them to please you. Now you become exalted above all things. Notice when Eve took of the fruit, the Bible says it it was a delight to the eyes, and she desired it because it was to make her wise. Wise how? that she in her own self could choose what she believed to be good and evil. This is an important picture because now this, this demonstrates for us how it is that you and I desire. 
is we want the world to work out. And as long as everyone's sort of operating in a healthy way in our kingdom, we're okay with it. But at any moment that someone crosses the things that we want and that we desire most, we begin to see unleashed out of our hearts something that no one wants. The anger, the bitterness, the wrath, the frustration, the difficulty, sometimes the, the verbal words that tear down. You see, those are the types of problems that the Bible's willing to address. And how do, we, how do we understand these things? Well, we understand these things because there are only two options, as I mentioned last week on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. You see, you understand that when you live according to the flesh, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, that the fruit of the flesh appear. You know all those counseling issues that a lot of people talk about in the secular world? Those are demonstrations of fruit of the flesh. Those are demonstrations of a disorientation, or James 1 would describe this when we're not walking according to the wisdom of God, that we're disordered in all of our ways. We become like a double-minded man. And so what does it take? It takes a, a reorientation. So what is biblical soul care, essentially? Biblical soul care is a reorientation back toward, as the next part of the definition says, a God-designed anthropology. And, and how is this reorientation to happen? It has to happen not just in behavior, okay? Because if all we were looking at was just a change in your behavior so that everyone else thinks that you look righteous and nice and neat, then the Pharisees did a really good job. You see, but the issue is, is not just simply the behaviors that you have. It's desires, thoughts, affections, the, the parts in you that no one else can see. You see, and here's the deal. There's nothing known to man that man can come up with that can see the depths of your inner person. The immaterial part of who you are, where your desires live and exist, the only thing known to man that can unveil that, the Bible says based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last half of that chapter, and also Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, is the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. The Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit, thoughts and intentions of your heart. That the Bible, by the power of the Word, is so powerful that it leaves you bare, open, and naked even before God. That nothing can be hidden from Him. The Bible's the only thing that can unveil those disordered orientations. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews, in Jeremiah 17, 9, that your heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? The insinuation is that not even you can know it. And so what does it take? Now do you see why the Word is so important? Now, do you see why we love the Word so much? It's because we don't even know the type of person that we are unless we, unless we understand the Word that God has given us. What kindness to reorient our life through Christ, through the, the written Word, reorient our life back to its original design. And it's reordered in, in worship. Did you know that you were made to worship? And that those things that you worship, Psalm 115, which we read several weeks back uh, in our weekly reading time, Psalm 115 says that that which you worship, you become like. When you, when you make things into your own image, you become like them, all right? Maybe the best way I can describe that is uh, think about when you were 15. You know, you dress the way that you dress probably because of the people that you hung out with and the things that you idolized or the, the people that you thought were amazing and you wanted to be like them and you talked like them and you wanted to sing like them and you wanted to dress like them 
That's all of our lives to some degree or another when we're walking in patterns of sin. As we begin to idolize things, we begin to give ourselves to them. Why? Because you were made to worship. You were made to give yourself to something. And if you're not giving it to, to God for whom you were created, you're giving it to something else. And the Bible makes clear you will be conformed or transformed into that image. And so what are we after? We want to reorient ourselves back to God, whom we were created for. Do you see? So what is biblical soul care like? It's, a, it's us conforming to the Word. Because that is the most healthy depiction of what it means to be human. Right? It, it, that's, that's the most healthy disposition of what it means to be human. That's the place at which we find peace. That's the place at which we find joy. This is what it means to be human. So we reorient ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 9 says this Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, or we make it our aim to please Christ. You see, this is the, the primary goal of humanity. When I say God designed anthropology, what I mean is God's design and purpose for which you exist. You ever think about that? Sometimes we think, oh, Lord, the Lord made me to be this, or the Lord made me to do this. And oftentimes we forget the primary things that the Lord made us to do. You see, he's given you all of your duties out there to do for this one primary purpose, which is to magnify and reflect the character and the nature of Christ. The, the character and the nature of this God. Remember how you were made? Genesis chapter 1 right, tells us the way in which humanity was made in the image of God. What was the purpose of that? That you reflect the character and the nature of God. And by sin, all that was destroyed. All that was destroyed in such a way that now we live in fruit of the flesh. All those unwanted things that we don't like, the, the vexations of the soul, the reasons you stay up late at night, and all the worries and the fears that you have, that's not a reflection of the image or the character of God. That's a reflection of you thinking you're in control of all things, and it disorients your life. And so God is calling us back in orientation to himself toward a God-designed anthropology. And listen, we have to reorient ourselves back to the Scriptures in understanding who man is and why man is intended to live. This gives us meaning and purpose and value in ways that nothing else out there will satisfy. And yet we continue to pursue it in a thousand ways. Listen to 1 John 2.15. This is a reorientation of our desires, thoughts, affections back to the Lord. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we need a reorientation of those affections, that love. And what John is simply demonstrating in, in the whole of that book is, this is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means that you have been redeemed. This is a demonstration that your, your heart and life has been redeemed, is that your, your life is now reoriented back to God. And one of the demonstrations of that is that you love. You love well in a way that can't be explained in any other way in this world. Listen to Romans eleven thirty six through 12, 2. This is what it says. For from him, I want you to think about this passage. This is part of the conclusion of, um, of the massive doctrine that Paul has been setting up in all of Romans up until chapter 11 or till chapter 12. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. And then he reaches back, which is probably a familiar passage. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, all the mercies that God has given to you in all of Romans, what Paul is declaring to be true about you by the the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ to redeem you. Remember Romans chapter 3, that you don't understand nor love God, nor are you seeking God, yet God in his mercies has sought you, the beautiful gospel of Romans 4 and Romans 5. The, the beautiful gospel seen after Romans 6 and 7 into Romans 8, that those of you who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. He says, now by those mercies, remember you were made by God and for God. And then what does he say? I urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is a reorientation of your worship. It's a reorientation of your desire and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, so that you may prove what, is the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, this is, the, this is the point, that we would be reoriented back in this way to what God intended. Now, if you understand uh, what makes Christ amazing, there are a thousand things that makes Christ, make Christ amazing, but one of the things that we see about Christ is that he came and dwelt in human form. He put on flesh, John says. And as he put on flesh, he, he actually demonstrated what humanity was intended to be like. He did something that the first Adam could not do, which is to live a perfect life in relation to the Father. And as he lived a perfect life in relation to the Father, what did he do? Paul's, uh, Paul's declaration of Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that's important because he demonstrated what humanity was intended to be and do. Remember Genesis chapter 1? We were made in the image of God. You see, all the things that, that, we, that we do in life that are unwanted emotions, unwanted behaviors, unwanted attitudes, I mean, you know what that's like, right? When you say something in, you know, to your kids that you wish you hadn't have said or at work to some you know, colleague that you wish you hadn't have said, those types of things constantly weigh on us because you weren't made to treat people like that. You were made to reflect the character and the nature of God in everything that you do. Jesus demonstrated that. He demonstrated what it means to live in relation to God, that your life is constantly oriented around the Father. And what happens? You reflect the character and the image of God. <clears throat> God says that that should be true about you, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God calls us all things to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29. We often forget verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of of his son, so that he would be the first mortal among many brethren. Why does he tell us that? He tells us that because this is what God came to do, is to repair all that was broken in humanity, and that he will. He will conform you to the image of Christ, and what's he willing to do? He's willing to allow all manner of suffering, even ordain all manner of difficulty that you walk through in life with the promise of Romans eight twenty eight that he will bring about good. And what is good? Not the way that you and I define good, right? Okay, Lord, we'll make this deal and, you know, I'll walk through this really difficult time if I'm blessed, you know, tenfold after all this is done, right? You remember how you had this thing worked out with Job, right? That's not how he defines it here. What does he say is good? The way he defines good is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. 
Do you ever think about that? How is it in James that we can consider it joy when we walk through various trials? It's because when you consider the good that comes out of it, the endurance, the steadfastness, the ways that you're anchored to the wisdom of God, this is what he's talking about. And so this is the way in which we are returning to a God-designed anthropology. Think about the grace of Christ to be be willing to redeem us in that way. The, The beauty of the work of Christ that redeems us from the inside out, that he is reorienting ourselves. He's conforming us to the image so that we're not, we're not being transformed into the world. He's conforming, transforming us into the image of God. He repeats this idea in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in heavens, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have be- been created uh, through him and for him. But you were created for God. And that's not, not just a quote-unquote spiritual adventure. That is a life disposition for all of us. And when that doesn't go well, we need soul care. We need care appropriately. And every system of care that we implement has a paradigm by which we operate. And when you're a Christian, you think distinctly according to the terms that God laid out in Scripture. And when God lays out this picture in Scripture where he defines for us how humanity is broken, why we're broken, why we struggle behaviorally and emotionally and attitudinally and in our orientation of worship to God, not only does he describe how we fall into those things, he also gives us a picture of how we come out of those things. And he employs us with what's necessary, the Word, by the power of the Spirit, to help us to be reoriented, to help us to be cared for well. So that as we can live according to the promises of God, to live, Psalm 1, a blessed and happy life. This is the picture. We read Psalm 119 this morning uh, in our, in our worship service. You're going to hear the beauty of the Word in what it accomplishes in a person. It reorients us back to the beauty of what God designed in us. Think about, think about today how suicide is increasing massively. You get to a place, you know, in in a person's mind, and some of you have even felt that before, where you feel like, man, maybe life is not worth living. Do you ever notice that in societies that increase in godlessness, that meaningless and purpose lifestyles abound? Why do you think it's increasing in, in our world today? Because godlessness is increasing. And they, ha- they cannot find meaning and purpose in anything they put their hand to do. Yet when you think about the way in which God cares for us, when here we are spinning about wondering how we're supposed to live life and we see all the, de- the detriments that come with it, that God has given us deep meaning and deep purpose. And where is it found? Solomon concluded, fearing God and keeping His commandments. You want to see meaning and purpose flourish in your life? Orient yourself to God. Walk faithfully with God. Work by the power of the Spirit, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ. That's the reason for which you were made. It's the most healthy disposition that we can have. And as this work is happening, there's sort of an order that flows here. We are oriented in right fellowship to God. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Being justified by faith, we are now at peace with God. You want to know what people are searching for? They don't call it by this name, but people are constantly searching for peace. And they don't know how to find it. They're trying to find peace in their orientation to people, in orientation to things, the stewardship of the things that they've been entrusted with, and they cannot find it in those means unless they first find it in relation to God. You see, there's an order to these things. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth and things in heaven. And we continue to search in all places for, for peace. Even us, sometimes in this room, we're searching for all kinds of things. And we think at the end of that little street is peace. And Christ, the, the Bible proclaims that, that Christ is peace. Pastor Rick preaching in Ephesians 2.14, it's he himself who is our peace. Christ is our peace. And This is a place in which we find it. So proper soul care always is oriented specifically to Christ in the way in which we see Christ, the way in which we conform to the ways of Christ. That's peace. Why? Because Christ is the one who made peace for us in relation to God. And then what happens? As we see the flow of this, it orients us properly to other people. You see, most of the time, issues of soul care arise by our disfellowship with other people. Think about that in marriages, right? Most of the time, the counseling, I would say probably 75% of the counseling that that I've done in my lifetime has been um, with marriages. Why? Because you're most vulnerable in that relationship. And in in that level of vulnerability, what we see is a, a disorientation. We don't like the way that we're responding. We don't like the way the other person is responding to us. And we try to start to fix that with like you know, ways of communicating. Well, I'm just going to learn 10 steps of how I can communicate to you better. Well, those things are wonderful. Okay? But the, the reality is if you're not oriented properly to God, you're never going to communicate well in a way that's honorable before God and beneficial for your relationship with the other person. Why? Because your communication is going to be driven primarily by selfish desires, selfish intent. And the things that you say will be all driven by what you want out of the relationship and not the way of Christ. What's the way of Christ? You giving yourself for the sake of another. You ever thought about the way that you speak? Think of Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome communication proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that's edifying that brings grace to the one who hears. Now think about that passage for a second. We're called to speak in a way that doesn't tear someone down. Who are you speaking for when you tear someone down? Yourself. You're trying to tear them down in such a way because you don't feel like you're quite up to speed with them and you tear them down in a way that benefits you. And God says the beauty of change is you put that off. You put that off to such a degree that now the way that you speak is for them. How do you speak? In a way that's edifying to them. In a way that brings grace to the one who's hearing, he says. You see, this is what it means to be conformed. Now we're in right fellowship with God and we can find ourselves because of that in right fellowship with others because we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. We can live for the glory of Christ even in everything that we do and relationally. Jesus sort of sums this up in Matthew 27, doesn't he? Or 22, 37 and 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is a summation of the table of the commandments in, in Exodus 20. But there's a certain order. There's a proper order. And we have all kinds of human problems when we get these things out of order. It first starts with God, our orientation to God, and then flows our ability to love other people well or to walk in ways in fellowship properly with other people. And most counseling problems deal with conflict in some way. Human conflict, one to another, where you're bitter with someone, you're upset with the way that they acted, you don't know how you're supposed to live in orientation to that person. Biblically, the Bible explains how and why that happens. Is, is we're trying to repair those just uh, what we would say is horizontally with one another. The Bible makes clear that the only way you fix this horizontal relationship with any person that you have struggle with and the vexation that it causes in your soul is to first be properly oriented vertically with God. There's a proper flow when you're oriented with Him. You see yourself that you are a slave of His and that your life is to be poured out for His sake. And so you, then you learn to live life in relation to other people. Okay, let's finish with this. What is the method? How does this happen? There's a certain way that this happens. It's not willy-nilly. God actually gives us a method in the Scriptures. It's not the best of our human wisdom uh, that we can offer that helps us to have methods. And by the way, methods are not neutral. Methods are intended to be a stewardship of what God has given us. Methods always have an end goal. Methods are born out of systems. Okay? So when you think about systems of care, the methods that people use are built within that system. They're aiming at something specific in particular. Well, God in his kindness has given us a way, a method in the scripture, Ephesians 4.15. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed to and, to and fro uh, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes, but we are to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even, even Christ. And what will happen then, we, verse 16, we will continue to build ourselves up in love. We are to speak the truth in love. By the way, that's a command for us to speak the truth. And we're not just to speak the truth harshly, hating one another, speaking the truth as the Pharisees did in a, in, a, in a means to condemn. That's the spirit of the evil one. We're to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a ditch on the other side. is we speak with love... That's always affirming without speaking the truth. Those two things always have to be tethered together as we speak the truth in love to one another. What allows me to speak the truth is that I demonstrate to you that I love you. And what I want most for you is for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Because if I allow sin to remain in your heart, how much do I hate you to know that sin leads to death and destruction and difficulty in your life? But because I love you, I don't want to see you keep walking that path. And so I speak the truth. I'm willing to lay my life down to speak the truth humbly to you. Romans 15, 14, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, and you'll be able to admonish one another also. That word admonish is to lay truth upon the mind, to take the truth of God in a spirit of love and lay it upon the mind of a brother or sister to care for their souls. And we're to do this in a way that's applying the Scripture appropriately, okay, and follow the, the rest of the definition. Uh, we give the Scripture, applying Scripture to the need of the moment by comforting the suffering and calling sinner to repentance, thus making them mature in Christ. We apply Scripture for the need of the moment. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. 
You know you don't take the, the, the word of God as a hammer and beat people with it. That's not the goal, right? Every issue is not a nail, so every use of the word is not a hammer. You understand? Sometimes those who are rebellious, we admonish, the Bible says. That's a stronger confrontation. But those who are faint-hearted, those who are weary and well-doing, the Bible says that we are to encourage. So to be skilled in the way that you care for one another, you have to know what's going on in the person and why they're struggling with the issues that they're struggling with. And what that means is we learn the difference between suffering and sinning. We learn the difference between someone who is encountering an offense and they're suffering under, under the weight of that brokenness of the world. And we take the scriptures and encourage or we understand those who are sinning and they're enduring the consequences of their own sin. And by those consequences, we're called to encourage them. And ultimately, what's the goal? As Paul would say in Colossians 1, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. The question then when we think about biblical soul care is this, do we love each other enough to have this same goal in mind that we want to present every person complete in Christ. Why? Why does he give that as the aim? Because that's the most healthy. We talk about mental health. That is the most healthy disposition that any human being can have is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be complete in him. And we make that our aim, Paul says. For what purpose? As Jesus would describe, or as is described in John of Jesus, that we would remain in the vine and then by remaining in the vine, we would bear much fruit. This is biblical soul care. This is how we walk with one another faithfully. It's how we take the word of God, which has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we apply appropriately to the needs of the moment. Because we see people based on the way God designed people. And we're trying to use the word, the means that God has given us, to repair our hearts and our souls, to be oriented to him. So that we walk faithful and healthy in a way that pleases him in a way that gives meaning and purpose in life, in a way that we can walk at peace with other people. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. Thank you for your love and kindness toward us. Your word is so good, as we'll see again this morning. We love you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.